This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 313. Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast. It's all about empowering you to run a marathon and change your life. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we speak with metabolism expert Angelo Poli about the science of metabolic rate, dieting, and body transformation. Plus, Angie talks about how to race a half marathon. And of course, you can get all of our back podcast episodes, training plans, and support when you jump into the academy. You can learn about membership when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. So, Angie, we have a lot to talk about because things are crazy right now. With coronavirus, all kinds of races are getting canceled. As I'm sure our listeners know, the Tokyo Marathon was canceled, the Paris Marathon, the Rome Marathon, the Jerusalem Marathon. I happen to know somebody who was planning on running that um, next week. Are you speaking in the third person? (laughs) Yes. I was supposed to run the Jerusalem Marathon, and then boom, it's canceled. Hopefully, there's not this domino reaction of marathons canceling all this spring. I mean, you got Boston Marathon coming up. You got London. London, Yeah, which we did last year. So I don't know. It sucks. I guess the moral of the story is if you're going to be traveling for a distance, you know, just to get travel insurance. Yeah. Because... Which I didn't do. Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) I never do. That's a good good idea. Yeah. And another big news, the U.S. Olympic marathon trials took place recently. Yeah, they were February 29th in Atlanta, Georgia. They had over 700 runners who had qualified for the Olympic trials. And the top three finishers from the men's and women's races will be going to the Olympics, whether they have hit the respective Olympic qualifying times. So it was kind of a shakeup. I didn't really expect there were some dark horses who appeared in the trials. The first place man was Galen Rupp. This will be his second Olympic team. He finished in 209.20. But then second place was Jake Riley. He's kind of an unknown out of the Boulder Track Club. He finished in 210.02. was a personal best for him. Um, Abdi Abdirman, age 43, finished in 2 hours, 10 minutes, and 3 seconds. It was really a big fight for second and third. And actually, fourth place was Leonard Career and two hours, 10 minutes, and six seconds. So it was really just a, a sprint to the finish for those guys. Um, on the women's side of things, it was kind of another one of those cases of some unknowns or, or people who really weren't touted to win. First place was Alphine Tulamuk. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. She finished in 227.23. Molly Seidel, in her debut marathon, finished in 227.31. And Sally Capigo of Nike finished in 228.52. And then for fourth place, Des Linden, 229.03. So those fourth place people will be kind of the on deck if, if something happens to one of the other qualifiers. So it's just winner take all. They don't stack your times against other marathons you've run recently anymore. Nope. It's not an average. You just, yeah, if you make it to the trials, you have as good a chance as anyone of getting one of those three spots. And hopefully you'll peak on that day and have a good day. So back to the coronavirus thing. Hopefully this will have completely resolved by the time the Olympics comes around this summer and it won't affect the games in any way. So yeah, a lot of unknowns going into the next few months. And we also had a new half marathon world record happen recently, right? Yes. Ababel Yeshina of Ethiopia 
ran the Rack Half Marathon in the United Arab Emirates. She ran a time of one hour, four minutes and 31 seconds. So that's a 455 mile. And she was 20 seconds under the previous mark. And you got a half marathon PR. I did. Yes. Nowhere near the world record, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) But yeah, I was very excited to be able to run the One City Half Marathon when I went to Virginia. And then there were some people I got to meet. One of them is a listener who's 11 years old. And she writes and says, Hey, Angie and Trevor, my name is Brooklyn. I'm 11 years old. And I love y'all's podcast. I think it's a little weird for an 11 year old to love a podcast, especially a running podcast, but I do. Angie, I heard you're going to run the One City Half Marathon, and I'll be there too. I'll be running my first 8K. The longest I ever ran was a 5K, but now since I've heard your podcast, I've been wanting to run more. Thank you for the podcast, and that comes from Brooklyn. And not only did I get to meet her, I heard later that she finished first in her age group at the 8K. That's awesome. Thank you for emailing us, Brooklyn, and huge congrats on running your first 8K and finishing first in your age group. That's super awesome. Keep up the great work. That's right. This next message comes from Dana. She's a member of the Academy, and she says, first marathon done. I did the Newport News One City Marathon on Sunday with Angie, and needless to say, I'm officially addicted. (laughs) I had trained for a sub four and felt good right up until the day before. Unfortunately, I got laid out with a case of food poisoning on Saturday night for a 7 a.m. race start Sunday morning. I started strong, but then began to slow down around mile seven and barely made it to the halfway point. I couldn't manage my nutrition or hydration as well as I'd planned. I thought to myself, there is no way I can make it another 13.1 miles. And I started planning my exit strategy for the next course vehicle that came by. Then I heard Angie and Trevor in my head. You have the power to run a marathon and change your life. I use that as my mantra, plus some of Angie's such as you are strong and you are powerful. I crossed the finish line in four hours, 36 minutes, and 32 seconds, and am proud of the effort given the complications I had leading up to the race. However, I already have the next marathon in my sights to achieve that sub-four goal. Thanks for everything, MTA. Wow, that's still really good for all that she dealt with. Just imagine what she's going to be able to do on a strong stomach. Oh, I know. She's going she's gonna to rock that sub-four. So she wasn't feeling it, literally thinking about how to exit the course after the half. I've probably had thoughts about that. Oh, I'm I'm sure everyone has during (laughs) a marathon. But, you know, honestly, to deal with food poisoning. Oh, yeah. That's no joke. And this final shout out goes to Drew, and I actually got to meet him at the race as well. He says, hi, Angie. So great meeting you and your sister. Congrats on the PR. I ran a marathon PR with a time of three hours, 13 minutes, and 57 seconds. I credit part of that to listening to the MTA podcast, which allowed me to enjoy the running community. I also wanted to tell your sister that I used her mantra, I'm a machine turned to on, and I love that. It keeps the rhythm going. Thanks for all you and Trevor do. And that comes from Drew. I am a machine turned to on. Drew, you are a machine running a 313.57 marathon. Yeah, and it was really fun to be able to meet him and his wife, Kelsey, and their little baby, Jack, at the race expo. Well, congrats, everybody out there getting in the miles and striving to be the best version of yourself. If your marathon has been canceled like mine, I hope you don't get too discouraged. You can rebound by signing up for another one. That's right. Maybe find a smaller race that has less chance of... Cancellation. Cancellation. (laughs) 
So we're excited about this episode. We're going to talk with Angelo Poli. He's an expert on the metabolism and co-founder of MetPro, a company that's been an awesome sponsor for us. And you guys have probably heard Angie's story. I don't know anybody who exercised uh, more faithfully than Angie, yet her metabolism didn't seem to be working right. And it was so frustrating. The metabolism really can feel like a huge puzzle to figure out. So we are excited to have Angelo back on and talk about why diets stop working, figuring out one's metabolic rate, clean eating, meal planning tips for busy people, just all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. People who've listened to the podcast for the last year will know just how effective dialing in my metabolism and my macronutrient needs has been in allowing me to lose fat and also just to really eat and fuel well for my training. I was able to lose 32 pounds. And better yet, I've seen so many PRs this year because my nutrition has been dialed in. My sister Autumn has been working with a MetPro coach for about three and a half months. She has lost 20 pounds. She looks and feels amazing. She's like a new person now. She is. She ran a half marathon PR as well at the One City Half Marathon. She ran a 220 half marathon in November, and she just ran a 149 half marathon. So over a 30-minute difference just in three months. Yeah, also just a heads up that Angelo has a book. Uh, it's an ebook called The Science to Transform that you can get free. Uh, it's just a free download. If you go to metpro.co forward slash book MTA, it's something that if you are interested in diving deeper into what we talk about on this episode. Yeah, so and at this point, it's only offered to our listeners. So check out metpro.co forward slash book MTA. All right, so let's dive in. Here's our conversation with metabolism expert Angelo Poli. Well on my way, well on my way. All right. We are excited to be on the podcast with Angelo Poli, founder of MetPro. Angelo, when we had you on the podcast uh, the first time, I think that was one of our most downloaded episodes of all time. Oh, wow. It's been amazing what MetPro has been able to do. I think before Angie started working with you guys, she was running around a four-hour marathon, and she's now run a 319 marathon. Fantastic. We have loved getting to work uh, with the both of you. Angie's phenomenal results, of course, and as well as so many in your community that have just been rock stars. And we've had so many incredible stories of success, PRs, physical transformations. It has been a blast. The honor is mine. Thank you guys so much for having me back. So let's, as we jump in here, talk about why so many people find that one size fits all diets don't work, because I know that was my experience 100%. (laughs) (laughs) So that's really at the heart of the conclusions we help people to arrive to is really what strategy is right for them. And the reason that we're so passionate about that mantra is what we've found is that There are a million and one strategies out there. And I'm going to tell you all my secrets right now. Here's the big secret. All of them work. (laughs) It's not that they don't work, that every one of them have worked. None of them have been optimized or designed with you specifically in mind. None of them will compare with one another as far as the results you might experience. So, and that's why now we we wrote the book and we're we're releasing uh, more content to the public because we get every day people asking us, 
should I be focused on carbs or should I be more focused on calories or does food quality really make that much of a difference or does it matter when and how much I eat or is really there such a thing as good, better, or best when it comes to exercise? How does knowing your metabolic rate help you lose weight? That's something I talk about a lot. Uh, how do you know when you should change your diet? These are all the questions that we get every day, and we love walking people through the process of revealing their truths. So let's dive into it. You mentioned metabolic rate a moment ago. Can you explain mm -hmm. what that is and how it plays a role in people changing their body composition? It's the source of all evil and aggravation on planet Earth. That's what your <laughs> metabolic rate is. Did I get that about right? Yeah, I can say <laughs> Because it's so unfair, there. right? You got it. It's completely unfair. So... And that's part of this whole issue with why there's so many opposing belief systems and processes out there is because everyone, people are so diverse. So we tend to organically, the way our mindset is, is equality. You know, we all have two arms, two eyes, two feet, you know, uh, we're all humans on planet Earth. So you would think that roughly uh, the same caloric intake, the same meal plan, the same uh, training stimulation should impact each person roughly the same. But what we find in practicality and in action is that that is one of the areas where people are the most unique and the most diverse in how their genetic profile responds. My very first client ever, she was in her 60s. She had about 60, 65 pounds to lose. She ended up quitting smoking, losing 60 pounds, remarrying her high school sweetheart. It was literally like one of those fairy tale stories. And I was just on cloud nine. I thought this was great. I was inspired. I'm going to help people get healthy, lose weight, build muscle. This is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. So she brought me her friend who was similar to her, but younger and had a little more weight to lose. And I thought, well, this would be in the bag, piece of cake. I had her do the exact same protocol, same meal plan, same diet strategy, same training plan. She lost five pounds, <laughs> five pounds. I could not accept that. My perception of humanity simply crumbled. And that's what caused my passion, my, for those who know me, my obsession um, with, with answering the question, why and what can we do about it? And the answers over now, two decades later, 20,000 people I've had the honor and privilege of working with and dieting um, all revolve around knowing what your metabolic rating is. And that's a very uh, fluid measurement. In other words, it's not static. Your metabolic rating today is not what it was a year ago. In fact, based on what your strategy is, it may not even be what it was a few weeks or a few months ago. And bringing that down to something real relatable for people. Now, not that weight loss is, is the end all be all, but it's something that we talk about a lot. A lot of people are stymied by how do I get my body weight optimized and take off that last 10 pounds without compromising performance. So something that happens is they say, I know my metabolic rate. I've done this diet before, this plan before with a great result. So last week I tried it again and I was shocked that my result was completely different. So same person, same diet, but just now at a later date, they go back and try and do the same plan a second time or a third time with completely different results. How is that possible? 
Well, it's possible because our metabolic rate is in a state of constant fluctuation and adaption uh, to our environment, to our diet, to our training, to our circumstance. And if we understand that and can track and pace how it's adjusting up and down, then we can have a cohesive strategy for, okay, here's what's going to work best for me. So your metabolic rate is really central, no matter what kind of transformation you're looking for. So I'm sure right now people are going to wonder, what is a handy way to know one's metabolic rate? Okay. You can prick your finger and take a blood sample, right? And then boom, <laughs> there it is. So, so here's the thing. People ask me about that really often. I, I, for some reason, it feels like um, less people are asking me about that the last maybe, last maybe six months or so. But about a year ago, boy, that was super hot. Um, hey, companies are coming out. You can do blood work and it can tell you a lot about your health, your profile, your genetics. And I honestly believe that there is a ton of opportunity and innovation to be had in that area of research and in looking forward to the future and what that brings. Right now, what we have is they're really good at basically saying you have a predisposition when it comes to blood sugar, you have a predisposition when it comes to how these hormone markers are potentially uh, food indicators of things that you might have sensitivities to. But as far as uh, based on your blood work, here's a map of what you should and shouldn't eat to lose weight or gain weight or build muscle. Uh, no, that that's uh, I have not experienced that out there at this point. Doesn't mean there isn't relevant info, but to get that information, it has to be a retrospective evaluation. And that scares people off because they don't know how to do it. And they, that sounds like a lengthy process. Um, our process, we call baseline testing. We do it in three days, three days. And we're able to actually answer those questions. How fast is your metabolic rate? What should you be eating? Um, and so basically, here's how that works. Now, I I know lots of people have, uh, if you'll allow me, Angie, I'm going to talk about you and brag about <laughs> you a bit. I know a lot of the listeners have followed your journey. I know they've seen your side-by-side -side photos and your dramatic transformation, and they've heard you talk about how you know your performance has changed and everything. But when we first started this process, you went through baseline testing with your coach, Natalie, didn't you? I did. Yeah. It was actually right after Thanksgiving 2018. Um, and I remember going into the process very skeptical because I had thrown a lot of different eating plans at my body, you know, in an effort to make them work this time. Um, so yeah, I went through that three-day period and it was very interesting. So I'll give you a little background detail that you may not have known about the data that we got from how you performed on that baseline meal plan. So you're, uh, how, how tall are you, Angie? I'm 5'4". Okay. So female, 5'4", late 20s, right? <laughs> no, I was, let's see, 40 at the, that time. <laughs> <laughs> so what's happened is your results on this meal plan this same meal plan has been shared with literally thousands of other women, roughly your age, athletic, maybe runner, demographic, circumstance, in other words, share your goal. Thousands of others, your results have been anonymously, of course, added <laughs> to. So that way you have contributed to our MetPro data analytics averages that we've been able to extract and say, based on this meal plan, so this many calories, this many grams of protein, carbs, fats, this glycemic, this layout, the average person of your circumstance will lose, you know, 0.08 pounds in 72 hours. So 
this of course is just averages, but what we can do is we can take that data, aggregate it, and now compare against how a new person participating in this baseline testing process is responding and derive action steps, actionables, and be able to predict how your body's going to respond at a different intake level, at a different macronutrient ratio, whether you need to go up or whether you need to come down based on your results. And it's it's never a in advance, we think you need to do this. It's always we evaluate, here's how you responded, here's the data of how thousands of others responded on the same program, and that means your metabolic rating is about average, <laughs> or your metabolic rating is really fast, and so here's what we're going to do. Or for those of you listening that are trying to lose that last 10 and struggling, maybe the result is we come back and tell you your metabolic rating is slow. And if we've compared it against thousands of other analytics, you can bet that that is info that you can count on. That's accurate. And even though it might not be the news you wanted, the value is in having accurate news because at least we have a starting point so we know what not to waste time with and exactly what next steps and options we have to move the dial. All of that data we have now aggregated and used to develop uh, what we're going to be launching really soon, and that is our new uh, MetPro tool uh, using scaling technology to basically do math quicker than a human could do it and more efficiently. So it's a tool that uh, very shortly anyone will be able to use and actually get a snapshot of what their metabolic rate is doing if they want to participate. That's awesome. So I know when I started doing MetPro at first, I really felt like my metabolism wasn't functioning optimally. I mean, I just felt like I had stubborn fat that was, it was impervious to all my efforts to get rid of it. So what are some other signs that a person's metabolism isn't functioning the way it should? All of those things that you kind of checked off is if you're not seeing the body composition shifts while either in a high energy expenditure state, which you have definitely been in with all of your, your running and races, or under a low intake state. And that can be that can come in many different uh, shapes and sizes. That could be low energy from low calorie intake. That could be low carbohydrate intake. It could be grouped hours together without fueling. Uh, so some people eat high calories, but they don't eat for large swaths of the day. Um, there's multiple approaches that could put you in an energy deficit. If those things are taking place, yet you're finding your body isn't stripping fat, you don't have energy to perform, those are all indicators that your metabolic rate is going down. Even eating optimally, if you're in a state where you're losing body fat or weight, eventually your metabolic rate will acclimate even if your meal plan is ideal. That's why knowing where your metabolism is at at all times is so critical because it helps you answer the fundamental question of when should I change my diet? How do I know I've gotten all the results I'm going to get out of the meal plan I'm currently on and should change to something new? Your metabolic rate will give you indicators. So is that what's called the adaptive threshold when, you know, your body kind of stops responding and you need to change it up or, or what does that refer to? That's, that's exactly it. Everything about your metabolism is designed to survive so it acclimates to your environment. So if you eat nothing but you know fried chicken every night for dinner, you are not going to feel well. 
<laughs> but you're going to survive. Your body will acclimate to it. If you eat nothing but a diet of 900 calories a day of vegetables, you are not going to thrive on that alone, but you will survive at least for a time. Your body is always in the state of acclimation. And what happens when you make a change, <clears throat> you get a window of time. So weight loss or weight gain or metabolic shift is what happens in the time interval it takes for your metabolism to adapt to the new input. So some people make a change to their diet and what do we always hear? Oh, I lost weight really fast at first, but then it slowed down and eventually I hit a plateau. That is how your body is designed. It's doing its job. So it's inevitable now, eventually. It is absolutely inevitable. There is no program that you will not plateau on. If you didn't plateau, that would mean you would just die. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's it. You would literally waste away and die if your body could not compensate to that change. So your genetics dictate whether or not you're the type of person that you change something, you lose a couple pounds and bam, that's it. Your body's like, yeah, I'm good with this. I'm, I've adapted. That's it. That's all you get. And then there's other body types and individuals and they make a small change. They just cut out soda and it's like, wow, I just keep losing five pounds a month every month. <laughs> mm -hmm. We don't, we hate those people. It's not fair, right? <laughs> no, but I mean, it's the truth. And most people are somewhere in between. What happens is our algorithm, when we track all this data, it will flag people and our, it helps our coaches to quickly identify, here is someone that decreasing their intake further is going to produce very marginal weight loss, if any. It is time to focus on speeding their metabolisms and forcing their metabolic rate back up. Or We've been going for a few weeks on a performance cycle. We've reached a threshold where any further increase to intake and we're going to start seeing actual body fat gains versus just muscle and performance. We've hit diminishing returns. It's time to switch cycles. And now it's time to make that adjustment to fine tune your meal plan so that way you can improve your performance, lose your weight, build muscle, whatever it is you're trying to achieve. And I know from a physical and psychological standpoint, if you are constantly focused on fat loss and you know re more restrictive eating for long periods of time, it just gets really wearing. And especially as an endurance athlete, you need those energy periods if you want to perform better. Um, so I think what you're speaking to is periodization so that the metabolism not only responds more optimally, but you're also feeling good during the process. And I think that's one of the huge benefits of MetPro. You hit the nail on the head. The difference is confidence. The first thing we're going to talk about is your goals, because we need to figure out what you're doing right now that you no longer have time for. Good goal setting is all about figuring out what you're not going to keep doing, what we're going to isolate and focus on to where we force that adaptive response. We're going to talk about your lifestyle and immediately know if a particular strategy is or isn't a good fit. If you're the type of person who's on a plane twice a week, this strategy doesn't work, that strategy does. If you're the type of person who is good about meal prep, this strategy works, that strategy doesn't, and so on and so forth. So we're, we're looking at your lifestyle. And we're, we're looking at your metabolism. We're having you follow a meal plan for 72 hours. Uh, it's not a forever. If you can follow for 72 hours, we can extract enough data to at least tip us off as to where your metabolism is going. 
And then we're going to know if you're the type of person where the soft spots when we poke on them are your metabolism or your lifestyle. And guess what? It is both at different points in your life. It, that Whether you're a strategic person or a metabolic person, both of those two things will apply to absolutely everyone. But I have clients that their metabolic rate is absolutely fine. What they need is the strategy behind the day-to-day. They need a game plan. They want someone to tell them, here's what you like. Here's what you're doing. Here's what I want you to eat. Here's the days you're training. Here's what you're doing. Here's the nuanced adjustments we want you to make. Go. Then there are people who come to us that they're doing great. They're not doing anything wrong. They're eating clean. They're exercising regularly. They're already athletic, but they just can't get that last bit of body fat to budge, or they just can't break through and hit that new PR time. That does not mean you are doing anything wrong. What it means is your body is simply used to what you are doing today. Therefore, changing something is going to produce the most relevant success for you. And typically, it's that we need to speed your metabolism. I think that's a great point because, you know, we deal with endurance athletes, particularly marathoners, and I really hate to see a person who is, you know, struggling with fat loss go on a more restrictive diet, especially right. if their energy expenditure is already pretty high. And they say they try to eat fairly clean or watch what they're eating. So I feel like that can actually be more harmful, um, kind of that tightening and restriction for the athletic community, and, I, and I'm kind of going to throw it into a little bigger bucket of just endurance athletes, but for a lot of runners, we absolutely find and have data to back up that when it's structured properly, people actually experience fat loss or even weight loss increasing their intake. Now, I want to put a caveat that it's not a blank check. <laughs> it has to be strategic and it has to be well laid out. And some people do have to decrease their intake. But we actually find that a high percentage of people that are athletic and training and running will see good progress increasing their intake. And so those are all factors that we look at. And th those are huge wins when someone discovers that they can actually get better results eating more. That's a that's a high five day. <laughs> exactly. Another big dieting trend that I've seen lately and I've had people ask me about is intermittent fasting. And so I would like your thoughts on what the pros and cons of this are for endurance athletes who are trying to lose fat or maybe improve their body composition. Do you feel like meal frequency is important in keeping energy levels stable? It's particularly important around your training time. So you're definitely going to find that uh, trying to train without fuel is going to have a negative impact on your overall performance. So if you are having a fasting window, just make sure it's not right before your training. Not that there isn't some science in, in having some fasting windows before low intensity aerobic activity, pushing you in the lipolytic pathway, the oxidative pathway. There is some science built around that, but it will come at a compromise. So there's a give and take. I get asked a lot about it. And let me tell you what I like about intermittent fasting just from, because I'm always about functional. From a functional standpoint, the, air, the times that I see intermittent fasting work for people 
is when the issue they have is just managing their overall intake. And I'll be honest, I have people that call me up and say, Angela, I just, I have a really hard time controlling what I eat. I eat a lot of bad food and I don't see myself being able to change that. Maybe and that late night snacking that kind of thing. That late night snacking. <laughs> and so um, intermittent fasting for some people cutting out a window of time, sometimes eating less or not eating during certain hours is easier than actually manipulating what they eat. The downside to that is, remember how we talked about how your body is going to adapt to what you do. So when you cut out chunks of your day of fueling, your body pretty quickly catches up, especially if you already have a slower metabolism, which I know is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction. So it's kind of like saying, if you don't have a hard time losing weight, intermittent fasting will probably work for you if you happen <laughs> to put on five pounds. If you're one of those people who have a slow metabolism and really struggle with weight loss, intermittent fasting could take a bad situation and make it worse. The idea is figure out where you are and apply the science that's most relevant to you. Now, intermittent fasting and in the, in the concept that most people conjure up in their mind, um, we don't typically go down that path. Yet at MetPro, we use cyclical fueling all the time with our athletes and with our, with our weight loss clients having to do with when we're timing carbohydrates and consecutive hours of not having glycogen replenishment. What we try and stay away from is the extremes because the extremes give us basically it's like playing all your best cards in the first hand. Where do you go after that? My goal is to get us as far down the path as we can, still keeping the ace in the hole and using tools like carbohydrate manipulation, carbohydrate timing, cyclical fasting, and any other approach out there using tools like that, really the way that they were designed to be used. And that is a plateau breaker, not as a lifestyle. And so just filtering through all that, don't walk away with any, it's good, it's bad, walk away with every approach has science to it. And there's pros and cons, especially if athletic training is at the core of your priorities. I really think that's important for people to realize. Because um, I also get a lot of questions, especially from women who are maybe late 30s up into their 50s, who are endurance athletes, and they just feel like their bodies are betraying them, you know, their hormonal system is kind of out of whack. I've gone through this personally. And like you said, just pulling away all carbs or going on more restrictive um, windows for eating may not be the best approach for them. Um, it may, you know, maybe another extreme that causes their body to even get worse over time. Your personal experience with this, Angie, is you've gone through many up adjust cycles where Natalie has actually increased very strategically and gradually the amount of food you've eaten. I'm presuming you have experienced that without seeing a decrease in performance and without gaining weight back. Is that an accurate assumption? Yeah, definitely. And I would say that, I mean, my performance has improved immeasurably 
as we've gone through these up adjust um, periods, because, you know, like we said, you can't be in a fat loss cycle all the time as an athlete if you want to perform well. So I've definitely experienced that. And she kind of jokes, she's like, I love it because I can, you know, up adjust you and you'll just eat all the food. <laughs> Whereas some women are very, very nervous or cautious because they think, oh, no, I can't eat more calories or I'm going to gain weight. <laughs> and did you gain a bunch of weight when you up adjusted? I would say only maybe a couple pounds. And it's That's just mostly from, range. from yep. fluid you know, retention because the more carbs you have on board, typically the more fluid that you have on board. So That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But you didn't just keep gaining and gaining and gaining. No, no, for sure not. Right. So where I was going with this is likely somebody coming off of a cycle of intermittent fasting, when they go back to adding food in and back to adding calories and carbs, they will not experience the same thing you did. Those people are almost always going to experience more than marginal weight gain. And usually it's very rapid. It's not going to be one or two pounds of muscle hydration. Typically going from that stark back to a normal routine is associated with a bit of a rebound effect. Again, that's why just knowing what you're signing up for before going into it is ideal. There are times where there is science to it and application, but it's about how that is applied individually. I know macros and counting macros is getting more popular. I think it started in the bodybuilding industry, but also I think it's kind of becoming more of a thing for endurance athletes as well. So, but I know a lot of like the macro programs, they will, if you're like in a fat loss phase, they have like maybe one refeed day a week where you increase your carbs. Do you feel like that, you just that one day where your carbs jump up, um, you know, maybe sometimes even double from what you're doing the rest of the week, is that enough to keep the metabolism happy? Or I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Um, There there are protocols. It's typically two days a week of higher carbs, three or four days of lower. And then usually what happens is they kind of rotate. So there are methodology like that. And I I actually do like that. We we use that in MetPro. We call that a zigzag approach. And we have actually tracked a lot of data on it. And what we have found is it does work. The other approach is more macro cycles where gradually you're increasing your overall carbohydrate intake and bringing you know, all days up and then just increasing a little bit more on the high performance days. But instead of it being a huge jump and a huge drop back down. And what the data has indicated is that works also. That seems to be a tiny bit more predictable, but there are good results with both, which is why we implement both. What we have found is as far as sustainability and lifestyle, a more structured day-to-day routine that doesn't swing wildly is easier to calculate, plan out, and prepare for so adherence tends to go up. So if we were forced to choose between the two strategies, we actually like a little bit more macro periodization. That is over the course of a few weeks fluctuating your carbs and protein, uh, carbs and calories versus a tight, tight micro periodization where it's just on a day here and a day there, a spike. But we actually use both sides. Sounds like you don't like cheat days very much. (laughs) Trevor. I take about seven cheat days a week on average. I I love cheat days. I love cheat days as much as the next guy, but I prefer feeling good and having the, the health and the performance and 
I mean, let's talk candid and the physique. I like to be able to look and feel the way I want to. And if I have too many cheat days, I walk mm-hmm. around in the morning and my wife goes, hey, honey, what'd you have? What'd you have to eat last night? I'm like, thanks. <laughs> thanks. I appreciate it. Is that I noticeable, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Once a baby do, so, huh? <laughs> but you know what? It's not about never deviate. It's about having a strategy. So I have some clients. They're like, I don't know, Angela, this is going to be a tough month. And they spout off. I have this, you know, board meeting this night and this, you know, social event this night. And this, I'm like, okay, list them all out. And I go, okay, you just listed five nights in a month. Blank check, go out, cheat meal, every one of those five nights. If those are the only five nights this next month that you're going to deviate from your meal plan, you're going to have the best progress of your life. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a great perspective. Otherwise, if people think, oh, I've got all these events or these things, it's like just scrap the whole month as opposed to having a more balanced approach like that. No, it's (laughs) it really isn't the, the big meal here or there as long as that's not every day. It's the nickel and dime. It's the little, it's Tuesday, middle of the day, uh, bored at work, and there's the candy bowl sitting out and you get into it. It's the bite here, bite there, that over time, if you have a strategy, it just mutes and blunts the effectiveness of that protocol. So you got to plan in some cheat days. Most people plan them too often. It has to be a compromise. If it's not a little painful, you're probably not pushing, right? It (laughs) has to be a compromise. But I I don't believe, hey, you know, I don't want to live in a world with no pizza, but I can't eat pizza every night. That's no. just the reality. I, you're going to laugh. So I got to, I, I know we're going to tell the audience about uh, the ability to download the brand new book, uh, Science to Transform. Could I share with you, because it's so pertinent to exactly what we were just talking. Can I share with you a few of the um, sidebars in the uh, chapter on the dirty truth about the weight loss industry? Yeah, please. That'd be awesome. So I I used to do this in some of my blogs and when I would give seminars is I would just talk about a few of the trendiest diets out there. And again, there is some science in almost every approach. It's a matter of identifying what's applicable to you. Mm-hmm. So here's just a, a, a list of quick tips and facts about the diet industry just to show how we have done everything and it's coming back around the horn. Uh, in the early 1900s, there was this guy. His name was Horace Fletcher. He was nicknamed the Great Masticator. It was all about chewing. You would chew your food into a liquid, and then you'd lose weight. That was the. Bi- I mean, there was. It was a practice known as Fletcherism. Uh, 1928. I'm not even going to try to pronounce this guy's name, but he was an Arctic explorer, uh, spent time with the Inuits who ate seals, whale, caribou, waterfowl. It was essentially the first recorded uh, event of somebody promoting a ketogenic diet for health or weight loss. 1966, uh, there was a, a dangerous approach abusing drugs that was actually featured in kind of an expose novel called Valley of the Dolls calling, called Sleeping Beauty. Very dangerous practices that you just you'd be shocked to see that, you know, not in the distance past were still practiced. In 1971, the grapefruit diet uh, became popular. It had been around a lot longer, but that's when it really gained momentum. And it was basically just passed around on a little sheet of paper that was later faxed to one another and then later emailed. And it's not a complicated diet. Eat grapefruits. Uh, (laughs) That's it. Just grapefruits. 
Grapefruits. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> 1975, there was the cookie diet that was built on meal replacements formulated to look like cookies. And that was kind of sometimes cited as the birth of meal replacement bars and weight loss snacks. Okay. Somebody was a marketing genius. <laughs> genius. Yep. <laughs> the cookie diet. 1977 was slim fast, you know, just replace any two meals a day with a shake. Uh, 1980 cabbage soup diet, right? We've all, we've all heard about that. It's where you lose all your friends and family because you have such bad gas. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one. 1981 came under a lot of fire. Julie Mays's Beverly Hills diet. Uh, She said basically 10 days, almost exclusive fruit. Uh, Then in 1985, Jenny Craig popularized food delivery. Um, I think, don't quote me on this, I think first she was in Australia, it was big, and then it moved to the US, and I think that was around 85. Uh, In 88, the liquid diet, do you remember Optifast? No, thankfully. (laughs) So Oprah made that popular because she had lost a lot of weight going on Optifast, which is basically drink these shakes and you lose weight, low-calorie shakes. Um, That was in 1988. She went on to continue to have a very public uh, battle with her weight for years after, but that was a big thing in the late 80s, early 90s. In 90s, big companies jumped on the low-fat bandwagon, Nabisco, Sara Lee, PepsiCo, McDonald's. They all started adding new menu items, low-fat. In 1996, blood-type diet. 2000 was about the year that we started seeing the commercials of Jared Fogle and his insanely large pair of pants. Mm-hmm. saying Subway, eat Subway, to, and that's how I lost all this weight. <laughs> and just a few years later was when Dr. Atkins hit his height of popularity in saying, yeah, don't ever eat the outside of the sandwich, just eat what's in between the bread. In 2006 was the master cleanse, got super popular after Beyonce u- used it, getting ready for Dream Girls. 2007, the raw food diet, so don't heat food over 104 degrees. And in 2010, and I don't know if the source was accurate, but the diet happened. Apparently, Jennifer Aniston was heard of or seen uh, buying baby food as part of her diet or lifestyle strategy to get ready for a role. And whether that actually happened or not, the diet was real and it became a thing on the internet. I would have to say the peach baby food is actually really tasty, but any of the meats, <laughs> if you've ever cracked open the meats or the vegetables, yeah. I mean, you'd have to have a pretty strong stomach to get those down. Just like no salt. <laughs> so, but you know what? Like Even that, there's science in everything. You know what the science is in that? Your meals are prepared. You have them with you and they are portable. And how often do Natalie and I and the other coaches, you know, talk about that is the value of a food is beyond just the macronutrient micronutrient caloric load, the value of food comes also in its practicality and portability. Know which is which. Because that, that's a huge factor. So though I don't promote the baby food diet. <laughs> no, thankfully not. So is there any foods that you guys would just advise people to cut out and stop eating? Because 
Uh, how, how long do you have? <laughs> so um, the way I like to say it is if you could get access to this food 50 years ago, go for it. Basically, if it grows on a tree, unless you're unless you prefer a plant based, if it comes off an animal, if it grows in the ground, if it's a food from Earth, eat it. It's man that ruins everything. We ruin everything. We need to, you know, we need it to have a longer shelf life. So we put preservatives in it. We need it to, uh, to last longer and be softer and have a f- warm, fuzzy appearance. So we put chemicals in it and dyes in it and preservatives and we process, which essentially is like pre-digesting. And then we free fortify it with uh, synthetic vitamins and minerals. And we strip from it a whole bunch of its natural nutrients. And we just mill and process everything good out of it and we sell it in the mainstream and that's the stuff you don't want to eat get rid of the boxes get rid of the processed you know eat like grandma and grandpa used to eat whole foods that's that's really the the key if i had to put a blanket statement on it (laughs) so you kind of mentioned how important it is to plan ahead and to prep meals in advance so what are some meal prep tips that you have for busy people who are you know, in an effort to lose weight and to keep their, their energy levels stable. So I'm going to give you all of the meal prep tips. Awesome. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you all of the strategies, the takeaways, the, the fundamental learnings of, you know, our last 20 years doing this and all the data aggregated and what we've learned. I want to answer the big questions. What I've, what I've done is if it's okay, <laughs> is I want to invite your audience. We have a new book where we have a whole chapter dedicated to food prep and a whole FAQ section. So you can go there and you can have a list after list and then actually see example meals and see things. And there are elaborate ones. And then there's ones like we talk about portable, quick, but we just finished and it's something I'm really proud of. We've filtered through, we've boiled down all the best takeaways and put it into, it's actually a short, it's a short read. Go and download it. There's absolutely no cost to it. We'd love to invite you to look through and see recommended food prep strategies from our concierge coaching experts, where to start, how to evaluate your metabolism. Um, what are the best foods to eat? What type of exercise should you be augmenting with if you are run? All of this stuff is packed into a few pages. I call it a workbook because it's not super huge. And if you go to metpro.co slash bookmta, um, you can have it for free. And we would love for you to download it and be able to, to have some of the same experiences and wins that we've had. Thanks for mentioning the link. I was about to throw that in. People are like, where can I get it? Metpro.co, not .com. So metpro.co forward slash book MTA. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I was talking to our team like, oh, that link is kind of long. Metpro.co book forward slash book MTA. But we did it that way because this isn't for just everyone. This isn't a free to the public yet book. Um, this is a free to MTA uh, book oh, we <laughs> at this that. point. And uh, we're really excited because we've had such a, a long and uh, just wonderful relationship with you guys. Trevor, Angie, you guys have been awesome. And the people that follow you are rock stars. They come to us and they are just, they're enthralled. They're engaged to participate. And guess what that equates? They transform. And so you we got know, the best listeners. <clears throat> you really do. <laughs> 
so here on the shameless plug my wife is a big fan and she's the now she's not a hardcore runner but she loves running i I don't know how how is this you uh, you and angie have been working together doing this podcast how many years now it'll be 10 years this month Oh my gosh. Okay. So we're competing with you. You're not competing with us. You guys have done this for a minute. Do you ever have people that just like, I mean, right out of the gate, they just say, I love working with you too. I like Angie better. I just do. I like her better. You know, everybody likes Angie better. <laughs> so I get all the time. It was like, yeah, Angela, I like, you're a pretty good coach, but I, 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 I like your wife better. She's better than you are. I get that all the time. You get that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> So if you want to know what my wife does, she listens to MTA and gets her motivation and runs. And nice. that's that's part of her culture. That's why we have so much fun working with you guys. And anyhow, anyone who goes uh, metpro.co slash book MTA, get a free copy of the book. And also you will throw in a complimentary consultation that is absolutely free. If you want to talk to one of our coaches, talk to one of our experts and just hear what they have to say and get to know you, your circumstances. We love getting to know anyone that's part of your community. Right on. Love it. So for some quick tips to kind of wet your whistle for what we've talked about, what we have in the book, um, food prepping strategies. I love disruptive behaviors. So Me too. What, My what, teachers what, never appreciated it, though. <laughs> I think you and I went to the same school. <laughs> so what, uh, one of my favorite strategies around food prep is when you're making breakfast, grab, throw together, or prepare an afternoon snack. It's simple. And that's because if people don't do that and they're they're not preemptive in getting their snack, they're just going to grab whatever is available, which is going to be candy or whatever's at work, right? Ding, ding, ding. And, and a lot more happens behind the scenes than you might even realize. So by doing the, a one simple action of prepping an afternoon snack while you're having breakfast, while you're making your breakfast, it doesn't add time because you're already there preparing breakfast. Adding a s- afternoon snack to that is literally grabbing the apple, grabbing some almonds, throwing it in and go. It's 30 seconds. But here's how disruptive it is. It's disruptive because now you've had breakfast. So you're already starting your day right. If you have breakfast, most people will find they actually have a little more appetite for lunch. That's getting back to that whole metabolic function and process. So they're not going to miss lunch. But you're going to eat your lunch with the knowledge that you brought with you a snack for mid-afternoon. So you're not going to have to feel like you got to gobble every little bite down now because you don't know when you're going to get to eat again. You're going to have a snack in the afternoon. Then when you have that snack in the afternoon, that keeps your blood sugar nice and stable between the two meals that typically span the longest period of time, lunch and dinner. Sometimes there's seven, eight hours in between, depending on your schedule and lifestyle. Then when you get to dinner, because you've had that simple mid-afternoon snack, your blood sugar is not tanked, which means not every time, but more often than not, you're going to be able to exercise self-control without eating out of a place of ravenous hunger or low blood sugar, but rather decide how you want to fuel your body for dinner. And then when you have that healthy dinner, you're so much less likely to have that rebound spike and cravings at night before you go to bed. So every day what that does is that one little 30-second action in the morning can disrupt in a good way your entire schedule for the day and change how your body functions and how you fuel just by preparing an afternoon snack first thing in the morning. The afternoon snack has become an important ritual for Angie now. 
But I like the idea of disrupting, you know, how things, I know that if I go too long between meals, my blood sugar tends to tank and Trevor knows that I get yeah. very hostile yes. and I can make some very bad food choices that I wouldn't otherwise when I'm in my right mind make. Um, so I love the fact that being prepared, preparing, you're basically preparing in the morning to succeed the whole day. And that just sets the tone for what you want to accomplish. Since you've been doing Matt Pro Angie, what snacks have you found that you really enjoy? Oh, I love almond butter. So anytime I can incorporate that, that's, you know, my fat um, and part of my protein. I love cottage cheese. I mean, I know it's not for everyone. I love sure. apples. So typically my afternoon snack has something to do with either apples and cottage or apple, I should say, not apples. I'm not eating multiple ones. <laughs> An apple and almond butter or some cottage cheese or something like that. I tend to work you know, from home, so I don't need it to be as portable as some people do. But there are ways that you can buy, you know, single serving containers of things as well. So it's, it's very doable. So see, I love that because I, I never know what somebody's personal tastes and preferences will run to. But I can guarantee that, you know, did those items that Angie just said, did they sound like they take hours of slaving in the kitchen to prepare? Are they some magic formula? Oh, no, there's they're just simple things. I had a client uh, not too long ago. He as well liked cottage cheese. And so I kept seeing on his analytics that he was missing his mid-afternoon snack. And I'm like, hey, buddy, you know, I, I know you're preparing this in the morning. And we talked about you really liking this snack. I said, what's going on? He goes, well, I just really love cottage cheese and strawberries. I said, okay, that's good. He goes, but every day I come back to my car and after oh. they've been sitting in the sun for six hours, the cottage cheese and strawberries just don't look so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so probably I, not very safe. <laughs> I have a solution. I have a solution. So sometimes the key is low perishable. So that's where, you know, the a bag of nuts and raisins or similar. There's lots of great items that can be used as a snack that are also great to second as, you know, in the bomb shelter or, you know, survival food, right? It's not going to go anywhere. It's good for a long time. Uh, and if you're the type of person that has to constantly grab something on the go, you don't know if you're going to be near a refrigerator or near your car, let's use something that's ultra portable. That can make all the difference in the world. Yeah, I would usually get a hunger craving in the afternoon between lunch and dinner. And I would go, you know, look and see what's because I, I work from home as well. So if I was at home, I would go and look and see what's in the cabinets. And usually it's nothing. I'm like, oh, there's nothing good to eat here. <laughs> so since working with Natalie, what I do now is I'll have like some beef jerky or a rice cake with almond butter on it and maybe there some apple slices. So what you just listed, that actually looks like snacks for me in the afternoon. I'm really big fan of the the jerky, apple slices. Sometimes I'll do the, the rice cake with almond butter or peanut butter. Because for me, uh, I'm so busy during my day. What's the high priority for me is something quick. Um, and something that's not super messy. So that's where like the jerky and fruit comes in. Uh, so you're, you're speaking my language. It's all very doable. I get asked a lot, you know, Angelo, why do you use snacks so much? Why do you use snacks? I mean, there's research that shows that you can lose, lose just as much weight uh, without snacking. And there's research that shows that there's metabolic benefit to snacking. So it's like, where do you land on this? You're right about all of those things. The reason that I love snacks has nothing to do with anything 
metabolic or weight loss or any of those, those are all secondary reasons. You know why I love snacks? I love snacks because people don't eat them socially. In other words, do you call up Angie and say, uh, hey, Angie, I was thinking of taking my snack uh, in an hour. You want to go down and meet at the, uh, you know, the shop and, and we'll have snacks together? No, <laughs> pull it out of your drawer. You eat it while you're on the phone with someone working and you go. So I can control that. Uh, I, I can say to someone, you know, uh, Susan, I know you're super busy and you're, you know, you have deadlines and, and you're working the middle of the day, but could you do this? I want you to eat a small apple and 12 almonds at three o'clock. And you know what she's going to say to me? She's going to say, yeah, Angela, I can do that. Because if she says no, she doesn't really want to change her routine, right? That's the minimum, but that's literally the least someone can do. So here's what I can do. Now I have a meal that I can control. So if there are other meals that I don't have as much control over because you don't have as much control over, we have a little wiggle room. So maybe it's a principled approach. At dinner, you're with family. You don't always have 100% control over the menu. Maybe it's a broad strokes. We want to make sure you're getting quality proteins and lots of veggies with dinner and just go light on the carbs. And that's it. That's your dinner strategy. Well, it's not super explicit, but for some people that's okay because I have a super explicit snacking strategy that's working. That's really why I love using snacks. Right on. Was there any other disruptive behavior that you wanted to go over? Let's talk about something real briefly about exercise because we didn't we didn't talk yeah, too much great. about the the strategies around that. So one of the, the most common reason for either missing a meal or a workout, it's not I didn't feel up to it or it sounded too hard. It's always I got too busy. Always. Mm about time management. So one of the things that we've found, and this can apply to runs, but it can apply to any type of auxiliary training you're doing, anchoring it to your schedule. So the first thing we like is if your circumstance does allow you to exercise earlier in the day, statistically, the data shows that your odds of following through consecutively or consistently is greater when you work out earlier in the day. That doesn't mean there aren't people that don't have success at night with nighttime workouts. And if that's what works for you, that's great. But statistically, every hour that goes by, you are less likely to accomplish your workout. There are more things that can pop up and get in the way. The second piece is that anchoring. If you can't work out early, consider working out at a time that is tied or anchored to something else in your schedule that you can't miss. In other words, I drop off Johnny at school or pick up Johnny at school every day at 2.30. Maybe your workout should be right before that because you're not gonna forget to pick up Johnny. <laughs> or maybe every day after work, I drive home this path by the gym. Well, you're not gonna not drive home after work. That's anchoring to something. So maybe that's a good time for you to work out. Think about your schedule and your circumstance and see if there's a way to anchor your exercise to something that is fixed and unmovable in your schedule. You'll find it'll move up a little bit the priority list. And I think it's also, you know, just the same concept of like scheduling that time for yourself, like you would any other appointment, because it is so important for your productivity, for your energy levels. You know, I think a lot of times people think, oh, it's selfish to want to do this because I'm busy or and get this exercise in. But no, you're actually doing yourself and other people around you a favor <laughs> when you're making that a priority. 
And that that comes back to a, a effective goal setting really has to do with a strong priority hierarchy, figuring out what you're not going to waste time on and what things are going to take precedence, what things are going to move up in your priority list. And you just have to recognize that, give yourself permission to put yourself on the priority list. We all do it. We tend to put others and other things in front of ourselves and we're always last or or we are always the piece that you fit on top after everything else has fit in. If we have an objective and we've established that this is highly important in our life, that piece has to go in first or at least of equal value to some of the other big pieces. And then all the little stuff pours in over it. We've all seen that illustration. So- I think I know what illustration you're talking about. Stephen Covey had the the jars and the rocks. Put the big rocks in first, and then you can fit the little rocks in around them. I remember in grade school, our teacher showing that to us. And it always (laughs) stuck with me. (laughs) See, that's why it's hard to schedule anything with Angie, because she's like, no, I have a long run at that time. (laughs) Well, just move it. (laughs) Nope, that's the big rock in the jar for that day. So my wife has been reminding me, because for the last, you know, for the last four months, for me, it's been all, um, as soon as I get home in the afternoons, straight to writing as, as I've been trying to basically create this most relevant, pertinent pieces of how to transform. So I've been coming home and forcing myself, I have to write for at least one hour. And if the inspiration hits me, I'll keep going. Hmm. And it just had to not move. And what I found is if I just goes, well, I'll get to it later if I feel like it, it would never happen. But if I said, no, this is my priority. I have said I've promised myself and I've promised many, many clients that I'm going to get this finished. I've been able to actually move the dial forward and finally have something completed. It's the same way with any objective that's of priority to you. It's the same way with running. You want to hit that PR. You know that it's going to take some work. Here's what we have to do. And the time has to be dedicated to it. And I I love endurance sports and I hate endurance sports. And it's both for the same reasons. There's no shortcuts when it comes to endurance sports. There's no way to just go in with like a a power lifter can train a few times a week and they can sometimes shortcut it and get that strength a little quicker. But with endurance sports, yeah. you have to put in the hours and the time for your body to really adapt. And that's on a biological level, all the little hormonal interactions and everything that changes in response to simply hours invested in it. It's really a fascinating science. You can't cram for a marathon. (laughs) You shouldn't cram for a marathon. (laughs) (laughs) You cannot. Well, it's been great speaking with you, Angelo. I encourage everyone, go over to metpro.co forward slash book MTA and get a copy of The Science to Transform, How You Can Unlock Your Metabolic Truth to Becoming the Best Version of Yourself by Angelo Poli. Amazing what you guys have been able to do. You know, for for Angie and I, more for Angie because she is is not as lazy as I am. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You guys have both done great. We love working with you. We love working with your audience. And and it's been an honor to to be back on, on the show. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. All right. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. And once again, to grab a copy of the book, The Science to Transform, to uh, dive deeper into how metabolic profiling works, definitely check out metpro.co forward slash book MTA. And Angie, like you mentioned at the top of the episode, you've been getting faster and faster 
not only you, but your sister, Autumn, as well, who's been working with a Met Pro coach, actually, Natalie, the same coach that you work with. And you guys recently went down to the One City Half Marathon. Your husbands were kind enough to stay home and watch the kids. Oh, yes. Martyrs. Each and every one. <laughs> but you guys went down there with the intent of setting half marathon PRs. You found a flat half marathon close by, and you've got all this fitness in the tank. And then you guys went down there and raced the half marathon. So tell us about the half marathon, and then maybe we'll share some tips also with listeners about how to race a half Yeah. So the One City Races are held in Newport News, Virginia, which is a beautiful area. This is the sixth year that they held the races and they have a marathon, half marathon, 8K and a mile fun run for kids. I think between all of the events, there are around 2,700 participants. So it's a small race, which I think is actually ideal for running a PR because you're not weaving around people and tripping over people all the time. You could just really get into your pace, get into your zone. And I didn't plan an MTA meetup because it was kind of a last minute thing. However, there ended up being several MTA listeners Um, We read the shout out to Dana earlier, who was doing her first marathon, Um, got to meet her husband, Michael, who was doing his second marathon, and of course, their daughters, Brooklyn and Bristol, and Dana's aunt, who were all doing one of the races. And then I also saw Drew, who we gave the shout out to, and his wife and baby. And then a lady named Lisa and her friend um, came up to say hi, and they're doing a race together in all 50 states. So it was really fun to be able to connect with them. So on race morning, we were bused to the half marathon starting line, which was held at a local school. The weather is around 30 degrees, so it was cold, but it promised to be a sunny day. So, so after a lot of debate, I decided to go with shorts, compression socks, a tank, my arm sleeves, and some little gloves. Not much on a cold day. Yeah. But you know, when you're racing a half marathon or a marathon, your body heats up pretty quickly. So you'll be cool maybe in the first mile or two. But um, I I definitely felt like I dressed wisely. Now my hands always get cold. So I actually left my gloves on the whole time. Hmm. But otherwise, I felt like I had, I made good choices. Did you have like a throwaway jacket? I did, but I got rid of it before the start because I didn't want to have to worry about... It was something I had to take off over my head. It wasn't very convenient. (laughs) Try to do that while you're running. Exactly. So I was not going to try to trip myself. And Autumn and I decided to run at our own paces since we were both going for PRs. And I actually felt pretty relaxed pre-race, even though I hadn't raced a half marathon since 2011. Can you believe it's been that long? Um, My previous PR was 153.31. So yeah, I felt like I could definitely improve on that. The course was really well supported. It wound through the city and through a beautiful park area kind of by the water. Um, The course was generally very flat. There were a couple of small hills, but it was a great course to run a PR on. And I decided to run according to effort. And even though it was uncomfortable to keep pushing, I kept reminding myself that it would only hurt for half the amount of time that a marathon would. <laughs> <laughs> and I also had to keep reminding myself that I was done after mile 13, so I didn't need to save any energy for after that point. You know, during a marathon, pacing is much different than half marathon pacing. So overall, my pace only varied during the race, about 20 seconds per mile. And I ended up finishing in one hour, 37 minutes and 28 seconds, 
which was an average pace of 7.26 per mile. Um, and that was a PR of 16 minutes and three seconds for me. Um, I ended up fifth in my age group and the 19th female overall. So nice. I was happy with my stats. Of course, when I crossed the finish line, I'm like, oh, I, maybe I could have run a couple minutes faster. You know how your mind always goes there. But generally, I was very, very happy with my finish time. At the finish line, they gave out nice medals. They had these disposable jackets or heat sheets that you could get. And so I just kind of hung around there and got to see Autumn Crumb cross the finish line in 149.47, which was a 10-minute PR for her, like I mentioned earlier. And it was 30 minutes faster than her last half marathon three months ago. So she was very tired, obviously, but also stoked to have run that time. And it was interesting because... You know, I was kind of talking to her beforehand about pacing, and I, I kind of told her what I thought she was capable of, but I said, don't start out too fast and just really work on getting into a comfortably hard pace that you can maintain. So speaking of that, let's dive deeper into some more advice you would give a person who is wanting to run a PR in the half marathon. Well, I think the first thing you need to do is to position yourself in the right corral according to your desired race pace. This is going to help you avoid weaving around tons of runners. You should be able to get into your desired pace quickly, especially if it's a larger race. Don't be ashamed to move up to the front. Yeah, if your training indicates that you can run near the front, you need to run near the front. You know, don't be all shy and be in the back. Of course, if your training indicates that you should not be in the front, then you should not get in the front. Try to position yourself according to what your race pace is going to be because it really just does help the whole flow of the race. Plus, it helps you mentally because then you don't have people like shoving around you or whizzing by you or you having to weave around a lot of people. Number two, keep your pace conservative for the first 5K. Since you'll have lots of energy in the beginning, you should feel like you're running a bit too slowly in the first three miles. So maybe like five to 10 seconds slower than your desired race pace. The tendency is you're excited, you have all this energy and just to lay down some blazing fast first miles. But if you look at half marathon records, most of them are run doing negative splits. So you want to be able to have a sustainable pace that you can maintain and even get slightly faster in the half. And if you keep that first 5K conservative, then you're going to have the energy left to do that, whether you're doing a half marathon or a marathon. Good stuff. Number three is to relax into your desired race pace, a comfortably hard effort for miles three to 11. If you're racing a half marathon, you want to keep pushing. You don't want to just kind of relax into that pace of least resistance. We all have that kind of easy running pace that if you're not staying focused, you can just kind of revert back to. I know that pace well. You start thinking about something, your mind goes off, and suddenly your pace slows down. So you really do have to stay mentally engaged, keep focused on that comfortably hard effort level. Number four is to stick to your fueling plan. Running at a harder effort will cause you to burn through more glycogen, so you may need a bit more fuel than if you ran an easy half marathon. Depending on your pace, some people don't typically need fuel for maybe a half marathon in training or up to that distance. But if you're running faster, you're demanding more out of your body, you're going to be burning through glycogen more quickly, so you'll probably need some kind of fuel. Number five, I will reiterate the mental part of it. Have some good mantras that will keep you pushing. I would say go into the race with some kind of mantras in your back pocket. You know, you don't know what's gonna motivate you, but you have to have something 
And you may have something that just pops into your head randomly that you like better than the ones you have in your proverbial back pocket. But go in with a mindset that you are going to keep pushing, that you are strong, that you are capable, that you're going to do your best and just let your body do its job. Just remember your body's machine turned to on. That's right. You can use Autumn's mantra. (laughs) She's always got good ones. Number six, after mile 11, start working on reeling in runners in front of you. You don't want to like drop the pedal to the metal, so to speak, at mile 11 yet, but just kind of work on keeping your legs turning over well, staying strong, try and make a game of how many people you can pass. And that will not only give you more energy, but it's also going to help pass the time and kind of give you that added motivation to stay strong in the last couple of miles. You know, you mentioned before on an episode, David Goggins talks about taking souls. Yeah, passing somebody, taking their soul, and don't let them take your soul. That's right. Then at mile 12, start to dig deep for a final strong mile. But of course, don't start your finishing kick too early because if you're running, you know, max effort for a mile, you're going to start faltering towards the end. So save that final burst of speed until you have less than a half mile left, probably around a quarter mile. But make sure you've saved enough so that that final 5K can be nice and strong and you've got the energy to give a nice finishing kick across the finish line and don't leave anything in the tank. Leave it all there on the course. And those marathon signs people hold up, one of them says, pain is temporary, race results are forever. (laughs) That's right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for being a listener. If we can help you in any way in your training, we do have a contact form on our website. You can send us a question. Also, inside the Academy for our members, we have something called the Training Plan Vault. And if you're looking at running a faster half marathon, for example, we have training plans that Angie's designed. We have everything from a 120 half to a three hour half marathon training plan inside there in both miles and metric versions plus all kinds of other great stuff. You can check that out when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. Until next time, keep taking action in your health. Always remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my way.